you know, society, they like the way this guy makes ice cream, but the other guy, they don't like his ice cream that much, and they don't buy it, so it uh, fades out. What's that? Supply and demand. Free enterprise. Competition. The profit bonus. Down on the economy, stupid. Where is it? From everywhere, everywhere. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Everyday Economics, hosted by Justin LaRue, Lanny Zerou, and Grégoire Maillard. In the news today, we will talk about the idea of cancelling the student debt. Uh, we will also talk about Verily, which is the health care company owned by Google. After that, we will talk about the main topic of the day, which is about adverse selection. And finally, Geneviève, one of our listeners, contacted us and we will answer to a voice message. As a reminder, if you want to participate in the following episode by reacting about something we said, or if you want to talk about a specific topic, please send us a voice message on Instagram or by Messenger, or simply by email, and you may be in the next episode. And before starting this episode, if you want to support us, you can give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, and it will be much appreciated. So yes, guys, uh, this week, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, one of the topics, which is which is now a trending topic in the U.S. because uh, Joe Biden has been elected uh, as the new president of the U.S. And the idea of uh, cancelling the, the debt uh, uh, for the students. Personally, I, I realized that uh, to which extent the student debt is a, is a problem in the U.S. when I learned that uh, Barack Obama uh, finished paying uh, his student loan at the age of 44. So right now, the, the total student debt uh, in the U.S. is close to two trillions of uh, American dollars, which is approximately the, the same amount of the the tax cut that Donald Trump made for, for big companies uh, at the beginning of its mandate. And I think the student debt uh, cancellation is bringing, is bringing many questions on the table. Well, I certainly think there's many questions uh, involved there. You know, is it, uh, so the main, main question, I've been reading a little bit about this, and there's a lot of people that are just pissed off about the fact that they've had to pay their own student debt and student loans, and then they maybe are upset of, with the fact that some people would be given a free pass. But let's not talk about this right now. So, But there's, there's definitely this fairness issue. However, I think uh, the question is, to what extent is that going to be effective as a, uh, as a stimulus policy? Because that's what it is deep down. It's really a way to, for, for people to, to be less uh, worried about their income and start spending more so that the economy starts you know, to pick up again. But I think I, there's a, a very a much deeper question than that. And I'd be happy if at some point we, I'd be happy to talk about it, to talk about it at some point, is that um, it's really why why is student debt such a problem? Why are universities so expensive? And I think that's really the root of the problem. So I looked quickly at this uh, before we we started today to get a sense of the difference in cost in uh, in education between the United States and Canada, um, and and the cost is is quite significantly different. I mean, I think that. The average tuition in the United States was around nine or ten thousand dollars a year, versus Canada somewhere between twenty-five hundred and seven thousand or so, depending on the province. And so there's a huge difference, right? In Are the we year. talking same kind of dollars or Canadian dollars versus U.S. dollars? That is a solid question. I didn't. It was all. It was in the same paragraph, so I, I hope that it had been converted. But I, I, I realize that it's totally possible that it's not. And and in the event that, it, of course, it's not converted, it means that in the United States it's even more expensive. Uh, that would ex you know. So already the difference is bigger. And then of course you know they face the similar opportunity costs uh, to people who spend you know four years in university versus being in the workforce. So. At the end of the day, you know, you're accumulating debt because, you know, you're not earning income and you're paying these high fees in the United States or in Canada as well, some people think. Um, and, uh, of course, what this is doing is it's graduating people into an economy uh, with a lot of debt already and perhaps not great um, uh, career opportunities. And so sort of I think one of the criticisms that certainly people on the left in the United States have had is that you can't really have these two things going hand in hand. You can't both have people graduating with lots of debt and have poor uh, labor market opportunities. Uh, Justin, you said that this was supposed to be a stimulus uh, package. I actually didn't see it that way initially. I thought of it more about a, um, a policy for improving labor market mobility um, so that when people graduate, they can actually take more time to search for uh, a, a job or career that is better suited to their skills with higher wages 
Um, instead, when you graduate and you have this, you know, obligation to pay back this debt, you need to find whatever job you can as fast as you can so that you can make those debt payments, even if that means undervaluing the human capital that you acquired in university. And so, like, if we want the labor market to work the way that uh, it's supposed to, um, then, you know, we can't shackle people with debt if it's, you know, decreasing their ability to, to I mean, essentially get the most out of their human capital that they just paid for. Yeah, I think you're right. What, so so there, what's been going on, you know, since the past couple of days is that uh, there's been a call on the left in the U.S. for for massive forgiveness of, uh, of student debt. So Chuck Schumer, who is the, uh, the Senate leader for Democrats, has been asking Joe Biden for a $50,000 reduction in student debt, whereas uh, Joe Biden's response is that, you know, it's actually going to be less ambitious than that. It's going to be more towards 10000 because Chuck Schumer is actually thinking of this as a stimulus package, whereas Joe Biden, it seems to me, is looking more at the, at the longer run. One of the things I always wondered about is how have people acquired so much student debt if, you know, it's just four years, it's $9,000 a year. How do you graduate with $100,000 in student debt? Well, it's, it's not just $9,000 a year. This is probably an average when you include community college and stuff like that, because a lot of, you know, the, the big brand name uh, universities, they cost upwards of $20,000 a year. And then they're usually in posh areas, you know, because they pay their professors a lot. And so it's, th these are very expensive places to live in. And the cost of living comes on top of that. You know, even, even if you have some sort of a stipend, you still have to, to pay out of pocket to pay your rent and to pay a whole bunch. So it, it really adds up very quickly. And it's not just the university tuition that matters. It's just the whole, the whole four years of having to live on, on no income, basically. Hmm. And also, it's only the, the tuition and fees, but there's also the cost of books, which, is, which are really expensive. There's a, the cost of uh, having a computer and having Wi-Fi and, and all of that. Yeah, the, the cost of living mm -hmm. as well. But uh, what, what I don't know is, um, should all the um, uh, student debt should be canceled? Because, for example, uh, if we take uh, people, who have, um, people who have a law studies or medicine studies, uh, after that, in the future, they will have uh, a really high income and they will be able to to reimburse the two loans and uh, and actually they will be they will be better off in, in the society so should those people also have their debt um, council whereas uh, only the people could really need uh, a debt council uh. i see your point and that brings the question of it that's another um counter argument that that people have had is really about personal responsibility well first of all there's this uh i don't even want to call it general equilibrium idea that uh, precisely because you're going to get better jobs, the education for lawyers and medical school, that these are these programs are all that much more expensive. And so in the end, you end up with with Obama having to repay his uh, student <laughs> loans at, at 44, right? So that that's the kind of, of reality. But then among these, you know, not everybody is Obama, not everybody is a, is a successful lawyer or doctor. You always have people who get these degrees and who actually just end up having jobs that are maybe not those kinds of jobs. Maybe they didn't do so well. Maybe they realized this is not for them. And it's a very unforgiving system right now, whereas where you have to actually pay back whatever, $300,000 or whatever, just because you know you made a bad judgment call about what's your calling in uh, as a career. Well, and another element of this is just trying to administrate this policy uh, if you want to try to you know treat people differentially. So, you know, for example, one of the motivations behind the universal basic income is actually to solve all sort of bureaucratic costs of just trying to figure out, like, who's supposed to have what. You have all these different organizations trying to support people. It's tremendously costly from an administration perspective. And so the idea was, well, if we just give everyone the same lump sum, right, we don't have to worry about all these different programs. And that ends up being easier to administer and cheaper in terms of providing social services. And so if you use the same logic to think about how to do this, if you have to say like, okay, well, you took got a degree in classics, so we're going to pay all your, we're going to, you know, forgive your entire loan versus if you got a degree in, in law, you know, you have to, you have to pay, you know, 80% of it, you know, this becomes more difficult as you start to move into the middle in the gray areas, right? Like, so what does the political science degree get uh, forgiven? And um, I think that, you know, there's an argument for uh, just, 
you know, having a kind of a sort of a sweeping lump sum for everyone that just, you know, gets a bunch, you know, for either for the uh, stimulus argument or the labor mobility argument, just gets it done and, you know, can sort of set us on a different path right away, rather than, first of all, arguing about what is the right way to, you know, uh, forgive the debt. And then secondly, creating an institutional structure that will allow us to implement, um, you know, that more nuanced policy. Yeah, it's the, the fairness versus efficiency trade-off, basically. Sure. When am I ever on the side of efficiency, too? But uh, <laughs> you know, here we are. <laughs> but, but here, maybe one more thing about, about one reason why uh, higher education is uh, more expensive in the U.S. is because there's also this um, kind of this arms race for marketing, you know, and then to, to market the universities as, as this university being better than another. So it's really driving up. The cost and one reason of doing this, we've talked about incentives in the past. One reason of doing this is because to draw as many applications as possible so that the acceptance rate is really low because that is a signal of how good your university is if you only accept maybe 4% of, of whoever applies. And one way of getting a small percentage is to have more people applying. So, so this is a great point, Justin. I wasn't sure that we would get here, but I actually have a, an interesting story about this. I, I worked... Uh, prior uh, to coming to HSA, I worked at a community college in Vancouver called uh, Langara College. It was a two-year, um, you know, university. So most people would do two years there and then transfer to another university to finish their degree. And uh, I was the chair of the economics department uh, for a couple of years. And, and during that time, I was offered the opportunity to go to a leadership seminar to help me learn how to be a better leader for my department. You wouldn't And uh, it. it actually there was. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, <laughs> there was some useful stuff there that I learned. I'm sure really you nice. taught them how to do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, so one of the difficulties that I encountered right away was that the company that was running the leadership seminar, they were a U.S.-based company, and the seminar was actually designed for um, higher institutions of higher education operating in a competitive environment. Mm. And so a lot of the emphasis was actually on like, how do you attract more students? How do you provide, you know, the things that students want that are going to make them, you know, happy as customers? Um, there really was a, a competitive uh, emphasis on, you know, education. And I very early on raised my hands and said, you know, hey, guys, like, I appreciate everything you're saying here, but like, this is Canada, <laughs> you know, um, our education is provided publicly. You know, the fact that, you know, universities in Canada are advertising to compete against each other for students uh, is insane. Um, it, it makes absolutely no sense. And we know as economists, you know, this is completely wasteful, right? That advertising isn't improving the quality of their education. It's not improving the quality of the research that's going on at that institution. It's just, you know, essentially, we've created a system where, you know, the universities, you know, because of, you know, maybe the size they've grown and to some extent because of the way the governments have cut back on their subsidies are, you know, desperate for tuition and are now competing against each other, wasting more money to make it even more costly. Um, and so we're in a little bit of the same type of bad equilibrium in Canada, although in the United States it's far, far worse where, you know, the universities are explicitly private. And so, of course, they have this profit motive uh, in order to, in order to compete against each other, which is different than Canada for sure. But also, uh, so Justin, earlier you, you told us that uh, you, you consider the, the student debt cancellation uh, as a stimulus. But uh, what I wonder is um, uh, education is not a necessity to, to survive, whereas, uh, for example, food or housing is a necessity to, to survive uh, day after day. So wouldn't it be a, a better uh, stimulus uh, if the two trillions of dollars would be spent on a on something on some stuff which could be considered as a, as a necessity. From what I understand, the idea is not uh, so it's not so it's a stimulus package. It's not a relief package. That, that's a, there's an important difference here. The goal is not to to give money to, to those who are needed the most, but it's really to find a way to to boost the economy, if you will. And so, from what I understand, so the, the whole idea of uh, behind this um, the stimulus package is instead of having to spend money, the government would actually just give up the money that it was expecting from the from the loans so it's still the same amount of money that would be foregone for the government but the uh, the students would now have more money to spend on things and so there's just a bit of a uh, of a coefficient going here where you know, you would spend mm -hmm. money and therefore there would there's be some taxes coming back in and it would just kind of ease up and uh, and give a breather to to quite a few people and 
and get the economy rolling. That's what I understand about it. Again, I'm not a macroeconomist by any means, but it seems to be the logical thing. My, my, although the, the objection that I might have is that, you know, if you, if you, if you forgive $10,000 out of a loan, it's going to be over time. It's not going to be something that, that is something that you feel right away, you know, $10,000 over 15 years that you have to pay your, so that's, that's not a lot of money per month. And therefore you might wonder, is this going to be a very effective policy? Are people really going to spend more basically? Well, and if you don't address the underlying issues of, you know, the labor market and the cost of education, you don't, you know, you know, really fix the problem, which is ultimately what you want is an educated population that graduates into having, you know, nice, stable jobs so that they can support themselves and their family and, you know, a lifestyle that, uh, you know, is, is reasonably comfortable, certainly, you know, the, by the standards of, you know, the United States or, or Canada. And so I, I think that, you know, it's great to have a stimulus package and certainly like, you know, it was great, Greg, off the top where you compared the size of this potential stimulus to the size of the, the tax cuts, because that really puts in the context that, you know, we can make a decision uh, that has the same economic impact, but target the stimulus to people who might benefit from it more or might need it more in some sense. Um, and, you know, to, you know, put in a very simple macroeconomic idea, you know, if you give money to people who have less to begin with, they're more likely to spend it. And that means the multiplier effect is going to be greater. Um, so I, I think in that sense, you know, maybe this is an interesting way of uh, doing stimulus, but it, it certainly doesn't address the, the education problem and the labor market problem that we're, uh, that the United States is certainly facing and that we're facing to a certain extent in Canada. Um, so I, I think that that's probably the bigger problem and, you know, the way that the debt forgiveness is being framed right now, um, you know, isn't really speaking to that. So it's probably not, you know, like if I had to put words in her mouth, I'm guessing um, uh, AOC is not super thrilled about this. It's probably not satisfying her. Um, whereas, you know, for, you know, so maybe people closer to the middle, they might see this as just being an effective uh, stimulus policy. Well, her Twitter account says that uh, she thinks it's a no-brainer, so that we should do it. Right. No, no, certainly I'm sure she thinks this is a no-brainer, but I imagine she would want to go much, much okay. further. Okay, I see what you mean. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's hmm. all I mean. I, I don't mean that she wouldn't like this. I just mean that uh, I imagine somewhere in her policy is uh, like free education for everyone. And, um, you know, certainly on a different episode, we can talk about that. But Well, you only uh, have one more to go for this season. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, I guess I just, you know, it, it, I thought about this because, you know, just because of the facts of what we were talking about, but, you know, Greg mentioned, you know, maybe this isn't uh, that essential. Um, so, you know, I, I would say that education is proving to be uh, essential and a lack of education is proving to be an existential threat, uh, especially when people are incapable of separating fact from fiction and that causes them to take actions which, you know, are an existential threat, like, you know, not following public health guidelines or not understanding that we face, you know, an environmental crisis. Um, so here's a situation where, you know, maybe we wouldn't have thought of education as being something that was absolutely essential for our survival. And yet here we are, right, with problems like this that are being exacerbated by uh, a lack of, you know, um, scientific literacy, media literacy, critical thinking, etc., so for the second topic of this week, I wanted to talk about the company that we could maybe link with the main topic of the day. I wanted to talk about Very Life, Life Sciences, which is a nurse care company owned by Google, and uh, which may have been pretty controversial this past year because they are not getting uh, into the insurance market. So one of the aspects of Very Life is that they're doing a lot of studies by collecting a lot of data to analyze geographically and demographically what are the risks that some people may have earth conditions, for example, or, or other diseases. And uh, surely that very is not the only one on the market doing so, but I think the fact that Google has many private data for any, any individuals. And so uh, I do think that uh, uh, this is asking us a question about how ethical uh, it is for insurance company to, to use private data on people uh, who are sick or potentially sick to make them maybe pay an higher price or to build uh, a pricing strategy on them? Well, um, my understanding was that uh, this company, Very Lie or Very Lee, I don't know. I actually don't know how to pronounce it. You might be right. I don't right, know so. either. <laughs> uh, I may so be wrong. Th this idea is that, it, so it's, it's actually going to be, uh, this is not quite the company itself. It's, uh, actually, it's basically overseeing 
a new subsidiary that will offer stop-loss insurance to employers. So it's it's a special kind of insurance company. If you, th- you can think of it as a reinsurance company. So the company itself is called actually Coefficient Insurance Company, and Verily with Swiss Re, which is a reinsurance company, are actually uh, contributing to that. And and Verily is really bringing the uh, the tech side of things and the the machine learning side of the data science aspect. So just before we talk about the the ethical uh, issues, I just want to kind of point out that this is really it's stop loss insurance. What does that mean? It means that um, it really applies to employers. Sometimes employers have their own ways of managing the the insurance, the health insurance of their workers, of their employees, and maybe because they're not big enough, or maybe because you know for some reason or other, they they may end up having just not enough money to to pay the insurance claims that are happening, maybe because too many are happening at the same time. And this is why they would subscribe to a reinsurance company or so-called stop-loss insurance company, in which case the company that we're talking about would uh, would basically provide whenever it is needed in exchange for a premium, of course. So what, from my understanding, it's not directly to to the actual workers, but there's still, there's still uh, ethical issues. Don't worry about it. So I guess from, you know, my perspective, I generally don't have a problem with firms using information to charge higher prices. So let's just abstract from insurance for a second. Um, you know, there was a controversy a few years ago in the early 2000s because Amazon was uh, using, you know, very rudimentary machine learning algorithms to give charge different prices on books online to different people. Um, so this is a, very similar to what the airlines do right now. Uh, with their tickets, Uh, but people really, you know, freaked out that Amazon was doing this. And so they agreed to stop. But this was probably about 2005. So quite a long time ago. Uh, And, uh, you know, people were very upset that Amazon was using their browsing, not even the browsing information, just the information on the Amazon site to try to predict, you know, how much they'd be willing to pay. Um, Personally, I have no problem with this whatsoever. I mean, people can make a decision about how much they want to pay for books And, you know, we're not talking about necessarily the books that people are reading in school or in university. It's for leisure. Um, I I don't have a huge problem with that as long as everybody understands, you know, uh, what they're up against. So maybe, you know, Amazon should have been more upfront that they were, you know, looking at your data. But ultimately, you know, this doesn't bother me that, uh, you know, this is how pricing is determined. But when we're talking about health insurance and especially the way the health insurance is provided in the United States, which is often through your employer, and even then, you know, many people are without access, uh, allowing the uh, insurance companies to tweak the prices in order to capture more consumer surplus uh, might not be the most ethical thing to do. Now, of course, no one would object to insurance companies collecting more information so they have a better sense of the risks that they're facing so that they can come up with pricing that makes sense for everyone. Um, so I think that, you know, unambiguously, the ability to collect this extra information is good. You know, it should, you know, benefit, you know, uh, some consumers versus others. Like, for example, a public car insurance company uh, who, you know, can reduce the rates on their better drivers and increase it on their worst drivers, right, and ends up collecting roughly the same revenue, but, you know, is able to tweak it in a way that's, you know, improving overall. Um, if that's what they're doing, great. You know, no problem. Collect as much information as you need. But if they're using it as a tool for price discrimination, um, then, I mean, this is health insurance. And you're already talking about a country that has problems providing this for people, not to mention you know, the fact that it's tied to their employment. Uh, we don't need more things stacked against people for acquiring and affording health insurance in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. We, we don't need that. Now, however, I don't know to what extent they are able to use that information to increase the surplus of um, to, to increase the surplus to capture the more surplus from the actual end user so the employee so again there's the employer that's in between that's one thing of course we might think you know i think the the main thing the elephant in the room here we haven't talked about is that this is a sister company of google and therefore to what extent is all the information that's being gathered from us through all of our activities, whether it's internet, whether it's uh, through cell phones or whatever, to what extent does that information feed into the algorithm? And I think that's that's something that needs to be needs to be clear or transparent. But other than that, you know what we know, and, and this is the topic of today of this week, is this uh, information. Uh, sorry, insurance markets are are very vulnerable to what's called the adverse selection problem, where 
and this is what you were saying, Lani, where usually what happens is that people who are relatively healthy and who don't need to spend, well, not that they don't need to spend, but who don't usually cost much to insurance companies are not going to want to pay the premium of the average person because they are healthier than that on average. And what happens is that in the end, the only people who actually do get insurance are what the so-called the bad risks who are costing a lot to the uh, to the company. So I think what I'm going to say is just really um, just to go in the same direction as, uh, as Lanny. I think that's if, if that more information can do actually even advert even do price discrimination. I'm not, I wouldn't even be opposed to that if it's just lowering the premium for people who are lower risk and increasing it for high risk. I think the kind of price discrimination that you would object to Lanny would be to be um, to capitalize on the fears of some people that they're willing to pay more for insurance just because they're more either fearful or, and, and that would be uh, that would be a, a despicable thing to do. Or to take advantage of the institutional structure where insurance is attached to employment, and now you know with Google being involved in this, the there to you you worry about consolidation in the insurance market, uh, in which case there would be reduced competition among potential insurers. Uh, which will, you know, cost the the firms more money to insure their employees, and ultimately lead to, uh, you know, worse coverage probably. Um, but you know, the implications of that are probably too complex to, to you know, you know, suss out right now. Uh, but certainly a concern. I have some doubt about uh, how ethical it is because uh, uh, with the idea of uh, making people with higher risk paying um, higher prices and people with lower risk pay, paying uh, lower prices. Because I do think there's a, a socio-economical uh, variables that makes that some people have higher risk. Like for example, uh, uh, in the United States, the people who have a lower income will tend to have maybe more diabetes or and uh, and more um, diseases like that. And and so if to, if the people uh, who have then lower income have to pay higher prices, whereas the higher income will have to pay lower prices. I'm not sure. Uh, in the fairness uh, way of mm-hmm. thinking, I don't know how ethical it is really. Yeah, so I think I think you're right. So what I, what I was saying was about insurance in general, mm. and not necessarily just health insurance. And uh, in this case, I think what you're coming from, uh, where you're coming from, Greg, is to say that uh, you know, when we're talking about health, it just should not be an issue. And I think this is kind of weird for us because we're in Canada, where you and I are from France, and just it's just very difficult to to. To understand, to even comprehend what's <laughs> what the logic is in the United States, but I think that where we're coming from is that you know health should not be a debatable issue. It should never be a matter of whether you can afford it or not. So that being said, I think if people cannot be get insurance coverage because they are low risk versus because of this adverse selection problem, that is an issue, right? And so mm. that's something that needs to be that needs to be addressed. And so. How, how do we do this? Uh, we we should probably bring on on board uh, an insurance expert on this. Maybe Lanny, do you want to weigh in on this? Or well, I'm hardly an insurance expert. I just you know I think you know when you start talking about insurance in the United States, you have to talk about it within this you know bizarre institutional setting where they you know want people to compete for healthcare coverage, um, which you know again, like you said, I mean. You know, me being Canadian and, and you guys coming from France, like this is a, this is impossible to understand why you would organize a society in this way. And like Greg, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a correlation between you know your income and your health status for very good reasons, right? So people who are low income, you know, are going to have you know they might be working more, eating a less healthy diet. Um, and there's all sorts of reasons why they might have more health problems. Um, and you know, if you just say, okay, well, you're going to pay more or, you know, if, you know, even worse, right? Like if you go work for a particular company, Google knows you work there now and is now charging more to that company for their group insurance. Maybe that company doesn't want to hire you anymore. Um, I mean, it just really creates all these perverse effects. Um, but like, you're right, Greg, the fundamental problem with insurance in the United States is that it's private. Um, and you know, as long as it's that way, you know, we're really just sort of, uh, you know, it's what it is, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> um, and and so uh, I think, you know, it, it leads us to this bigger debate about, you know, how should healthcare be provided or how should education be provided uh, to go back to uh, our previous example. And, you know, like part of what makes us Canadian or, or, you know, part of what makes you guys French 
are these values, right? That, that we want to provide these things publicly and we don't want people to have to, you know, compete for basic necessities of life, life like healthcare and, and education. So today's subject is about adverse selection, uh, which can be a complex, um, a complex topic to um, to formalize. Maybe yeah, it's a weird term, even. I mean, it sounds like a, made up word. Maybe we could like explain it in a simple way to start. I think Lani would be great at explaining that. Uh, yeah. So I have an example that I like to use in class to, just to get things going. And uh, essentially, the idea is, you know, you put yourself in the in the shoes of a bank. Um, you know, the main activity for a bank uh, is to accept deposits and to make loans. And you know, one of the problems that banks have making loans is that when you loan someone money. Um, there's always the chance that they're not going to pay you back. And so if we think about this in the context of making loans to, to businesses, right, all these business, you know, or prospective businesses out there have projects that they'd like to invest in. Um, and, you know, some of them have a very high likelihood of succeeding and some of them have a very low likelihood of succeeding. And if the bank lends money to one of these projects, which has a low likelihood of success, they're unlikely to get paid back. And this is not going to be a very successful bank. Um, and so from the perspective of the bank, Right, they have to be very careful about who they lend money to. But they encounter kind of a problem, which is they also have to decide on a price right, to charge for the loans. That price we call the interest rate. Right? So it's the extra amount of money that the firms have to pay back over and above the money that they borrowed. And so, for example, let's say that it was, the amount of a loan was $100,000 and the bank sets the interest rate at, let's say, 5%. So the, person, the firm would have to pay back or the business borrowing the money would have to pay back you know, uh, 105 thousand dollars or thereabouts you know more complicated well, with compound interest over time right over time but thereabouts right so in this case any firm right that thinks their project is going to generate more than hundred and five thousand dollars over time um, is going to want to take on this loan right it's beneficial to them they can pay back loan have a little bit of money left over uh, any firm that isn't going to uh, be able to uh, make at least 105 back is not going to take this loan and so then the final step of this is, well, you know, projects that are likely to return a high, have a really high return rather, um, are ones that tend to be more risky. So if we were thinking about a project, right, that, you know, has the possibility of returning $120,000 uh, in revenue, it's probably less likely that they're going to succeed than a project that would return $106,000 in revenue or even, you know, one that would return one hundred and two thousand dollars in revenue and so what you end up having is this trade-off between the likelihood of success right and the the return that the firms are likely to receive so there's this you know classic risk reward trade-off and the way that this plays out in credit markets is when the bank sets its interest rate at five percent only the projects with a you know more than a five percent rate of return expected rate of return are going to want to take the loan these will be you know riskier than any project with a less than five percent rate of return. So the bank says, oh, well, I don't want just the riskiest guys. I'm going to raise the interest rate a little bit because, you know, I need to make sure I get a better price because these guys have a high likelihood of failing. So you raise the interest rate. Well, what happens? The safest projects that remain leave, can't borrow the money because they can't afford it. You're just left with the projects that have the highest rates of return and the highest risk. So what do you do? Well, you raise the interest rate again. You lose again the safest projects that remain. The riskier ones are all that you have left. And so you keep doing this. You keep raising the interest rate until you have nobody left. That is, in this situation, it's impossible to lend money in a way where you're going to be able to make a profit. Just because every time you raise the interest rate, you just get left with the worst guys uh, in the pool. And so this is the concept of adverse selection, where you know the market mechanism is really failing in the sense that it's not allowing for you know, trades to take place that would otherwise be good as a result of this incomplete information. Mm -hmm. And the really fascinating thing about this, of course, is banks do lend money, right? They've found a way to get around this adverse selection problem. And so I think one of the things that would be interesting for us to discuss is to look at like, you know, well, how is it that the banks get around this problem and where else do we see this adverse selection problem? So I, th I think one, uh, what you're mentioning in this story is that you said the same rate for everyone. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of also the at the root of the problem is you have to say set the same interest rate for everybody, right? That's true. Right? And um, and so the way you're you're, you're telling the story, and it's the first time I've I've heard it this way, is to say that the the 
projects that are going to get the highest return are the riskiest. That's one way of seeing it. The way I've always pictured it was, you know, if I'm going to ask for a 20% interest rate, well, there's probably very little chance that any project's going to happen. Mm-hmm. That's going to actually pay off. Not that, not that it's only the higher risk projects that are going to want to get the loan. It's just that I'm, you know, a lot of people might want to get the loan, get get that loan, but in the end, the odds that I will be paid back are going to be very small. But I, I like I like the way you say it. I have to to think about it some more. But definitely, it's uh, this issue where if you set the same rate for everybody in the end you have to increase it so much that nobody that the market completely dies off so yeah markets do lend to people market i mean banks do lend to people and banks exist and in fact they're they're very very useful part of the economy for not just businesses even for individuals and the same story happens for individuals well so you said something important right which is like in reality banks are not setting the same interest rate for everyone right they're they're looking at each client or potential borrower they're trying to learn as much as they possibly can about them, mm-hmm. right, before they lend them money. And they're able to tailor that contract to that person so they can look and see, like, okay, well, here's, uh, you know, a group of people who have no experience. They're going to enter an industry that's very risky. Um, you know, maybe, like, these guys are not likely to pay us back. We'll charge them a very high interest rate. And then, on the other hand, here's these guys with lots of experience entering an industry that's not very risky. We're far more likely to get paid back. We can charge them a lower interest rate, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so based on what, basically, how can you, how, can you how, how do they differentiate? Well, things that you can observe, right? So, you know, for example, you know, I think, you know, lending in di- you know, different industries have different levels of success. If someone's going to open a restaurant, you can immediately know, right, that this is less likely to succeed than certain other mm-hmm. uh, industries. Or, you know, you can look at, you know, like you have, when you submit these plans, you have to list all the people and who own the company and you know, you can look at their experience, whether they succeeded in the past, whether they've defaulted on loans in the past, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. So whether they defaulted on loans, and this is why at the individual level, we have what's called credit scores. You know, right. you have this, your credit history is is a way of, of signaling what type of borrower you are. If you're somebody who usually repays their, their, their loans or who doesn't. In fact, if you go, if you go bankrupt, which is a possibility, it really hurts your credit score for a long, long time. And one feature that's very important. The reason credit scores work, it's because you can't just, you know, you can't just show up to the bank and say, I have a good credit score. You know, this is actual proof that you have been a good borrower, if, if that's the case, because it's very difficult for someone who is a bad borrower to pretend to be a good borrower. It's what we call these credible signals. You know, this, this, this history it could be your driving history. If you're, you know, if you're talking about car insurance, it's also a thing. You know, if you're somebody who drives poorly, then it's extremely costly for you to drive well because you like to drive fast and then you have to you know do your best to drive slowly and that's a way of we call it selecting of selecting out so basically differentiating the the types of consumers that you're dealing with as either as an insurance company or as a bank so something that you said reminded me that when i was you know 18 years old and i moved out of my my mom's house uh, uh into my own apartment i needed to sign up for a bc hydro account mm-hmm. And so I called them and I said, I'm moving to this new apartment. Here's the address. I'd like to uh, have electricity, please. And uh, they said, okay, that, that's excellent. Um, you know, do you have a credit card? And I said, oh, you know, no, I, I don't have a credit card. And they're like, oh, well, you know, as a result, like, you have no credit history. And so actually, like, we don't know if you're likely to pay us back. So we can't offer you an account. And the only issue here was, you know, like, it's a couple months of electricity before, mm-hmm. you know, they, they cut you off. It would have been, you know, maybe $60 that I would have owed them or something, but they were not even willing to extend that much leeway to someone that had no verifiable information about whether they were likely to, uh, to, to pay them back. And so they said, you know, your, your options are essentially not have any electricity because you have no credit score, or uh, you can give us $500. We'll hold on to the $500 for safekeeping. Uh, and, you know, we'll turn on the electricity. And when you're done with us, we'll give you the $500 back. Uh, and so that's, in fact, what I had to do. I had to send BC Hydro $500. Uh, and this was another way to get around mm-hmm. uh, this problem. And, and this is an interesting example because this was an example where the market really did disappear, right? There was no market mm-hmm. for uh, electricity. No way someone with no credit could purchase electricity in uh, British Columbia at that time not without some mechanism, in this case, putting up the $500 bond. And sometimes it gets uh, ridiculous. Like, for example, my parents, they moved to the US uh, a few years ago. And when they arrived, uh, they wanted to buy a car, which they could afford. 
uh, but because they, they had no credit history in the US, uh, there were no sellers willing to, to sell a car. Yeah, in the US and North America in general, but in the US, it's very difficult to, to start your credit history because in order to have a credit history, you have to have somebody loan you something, but nobody wants to loan you anything until you have a credit history. So it's really kind of a catch-22. And so I actually, what happened with your parents? I'm curious to know. Well, at some point, they, they found one seller willing to sell a car, but at an at an higher price than usual. Yeah, All they considered them by default a high risk. Yeah, and even though they, they were not 18 and they had a job. But they had, I mean, they came here with, they came to the U.S. with uh, with jobs. And in fact, yeah. your mom, you know, it's yeah, a, a very no safe and, 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 and nice job, right? So, so. Yes, they, they could have the, the signal that they were a low risk per people. And, and so, yeah, it doesn't make much sense. But I guess it's not surprising in the sense that, you know, I mean, at least economic theory is telling us that we should, we should see stuff like this happening, mm-hmm. right? Because the other thing is, is, even, you know, in the case where, you know, I mean, you know, someone has a good job, if the, um, the, the car seller doesn't have the institutions in place to verify that information, mm-hmm. right, then for them, it, it's totally irrelevant. And for, you know, a small car dealer, for example, or an independently owned business like that, it might be expensive to have a system in place where you could check all these things, right? You might have, you know, you're paying your fees to the uh, credit score guys already, mm-hmm. right? Do you want to invest the time and money to, you know, uh, investigate people along yeah. other dimensions? And, and and the same thing happens if you're an employer who's trying to hire somebody. You're trying to hire somebody for a position and you don't know that person. You know, they come up, I mean, they'll come to you and say, I want to work for your company. What do you do? You don't know them. So there's, there's yeah, solutions. Are you good? Are you good? Oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm hardworking and I'm smart. All right, so I'll hire you. But then in real life, it doesn't work that way. You have to signal that somehow you're good. And so how do you do that? You have a CV, you have a resume in which you can write pretty much anything you want. But the only reason the resume is worth something is because it's verifiable information. It's verifiable information whether you've worked at this other place before and you have this reference, this person who's willing to vouch for you. Or because... And this is what I'm trying. Uh, this is what I want to get at because maybe you have a degree from from a university or a school, and and that degree is often a discriminator. It discriminates. It sets apart people from who have that degree from people who don't. Not necessarily because they know more, but because they have shown, they have established through the evaluation process of exams and grades that they are more hardworking. They're maybe smarter. That they are more interested in whatever topic that they've got the degree in than a random person. And that's signaling. Like ex- Education, especially um, college or higher education, is, serves as a signal for, for employers. I mean, let's not fool ourselves. I mean, we know that we, we really want our students to be in our classrooms to learn stuff, and hopefully they learn a little bit of, of what we teach them. But if you ask your students, why are you in class? I mean, uh, we're talking here, we're in business school uh, it's not like where a theology class would probably be different but if you're in a business school most students will tell you i'm here because i i want a job and i think uh, you know getting the degree is a strong signal for to get a job well and, and where you get to your degree from does matter uh-huh. uh, so an example from my previous uh institution was uh so i taught at a small college in vancouver british columbia called langara college uh it for you know Many years was a, an absolutely excellent uh, two-year college transfer program. So people would do the first two years of university and, uh, at the college, paying less fees and smaller classes, and then transfer to UBC or, or Simon Fraser. This is, in fact, what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but somewhere along the way, um, Langara decided that they wanted to offer a uh, Bachelor of Business Administration. So they had a full program. Full program. Yeah. Four years, you get a degree, mm-hmm. and the main specialization for them was accounting. And, you know, as someone who was teaching economics, I was, I was interacting quite a bit with the students who were in the business program, either because they were going to transfer to a different institution or because they wanted to stay at Langara and do their degree. And I had a very good student uh, come up to me uh, towards the end of her second year at Langara. And she said, you know, I got into UBC um, and I, I can go do my degree there. And I also could stay here at Langara and do my accounting degree here. Um, what do you think I should do? You must go to UBC. Yeah. And her response was, well, why do I have to go to UBC? I'm going to get a better education here. I'm going to learn more here. I'm going to be more comfortable. I'm going to pay less tuition. And I said, all of that stuff is probably true. Except that when you graduate, 
and you're part of the first cohort of accounting grads that came out of Langara College, people are going to look at your CV and they are going to wonder, mm -hmm. right? Is this person like a high quality individual, right? Who's going to be a great employee for me. Whereas the same person with UBC on their uh, CV is going to, I mean, not necessarily look more impressive, but there's going to be less uncertainty. And that difference in uncertainty is enough to give that UBC person the job. And more importantly, it means that somebody with less ability, but a UBC degree will probably get preferential treatment in the job market over someone with more ability and the Langara degree. And I told her, and this is why this is no choice for you. Mm -hmm. uh, now, 10 years into this. And it's a, just before you go, this is due to, to imperfect information. And, and it goes back to this whole you know, credit history here. It's not credit history. It's this reputation of the program that has just started and therefore has not had time to build this reputation. Perhaps right. it's a great accounting accounting program. But and in fact, it is. But in the first year, there's no way to actually prove it. Exactly. And so now, you know, five or six years into this, right, there's cohorts that graduated, gone into the job market, been successful, you know, and starting to build this reputation. Now it's less problematic. But you don't necessarily want to be the first people mm -hmm. here because, you know, even if you are good, um, you know, the reality is, is that when you're on the job market, you know, lots of people are applying to a job. Uh, the people who are evaluating don't have all the time in the world to get down to the, mm -hmm. you know, nitty gritty of who you are and, and whether you're going to be a, a great candidate. Information so, acquisition is costly. Yeah, right? exactly. And mm -hmm. so they're going to use the information that's most immediate. You know, Ashley Morale is an elite, you know, business uh, school in Canada. Uh, somebody who has a degree from there is probably pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Langara College. I've never heard of that place before. Um, I don't know. Maybe this person is good, but, you know, I don't really know. So I'm just going to take the safe choice. And mm -hmm. so, you know, this ends up being, you know, really important. It doesn't mean that, you know, and this is, you know, a little bit what I told her. It also doesn't mean that your life is over if you don't have a degree from the best institution. It just means that it might take you longer to get to where you want to go. Uh, because I also do believe quite strongly that the cream does rise to the top. Mm -hmm. And you may not get uh, the best first job out of university. But if you're great, you'll have the best last job. Yep. And so if we want to summarize uh, quickly, like the, the whole idea of, uh, of adverse selection, there are usually like two ports. So like we could say like uh, one buyer and one seller. And uh, each of them has its own information, but they can add to each other the information. And so the best way to, to overcome this situation was some people doesn't know the, the truth about the other. Like, for example, uh, for one port, there's like the screening to know uh, if the, the applicant, the person who gives you some information, if the information are true or if they're complete. And for the other part, there's like the, the signal, as we could say, with the diploma, which can prove that, yeah, well, what I'm seeing is true. And, uh, and you can even like have more information, more accurate information. Well, and I've got a funny story about this as well. Um, I uh, applied for a job at Van City, which is a, a credit union in, in Vancouver, uh, you know, a small bank. And, uh, you know, I looked pretty good on paper. You know, I was an honor student at Simon Fraser. I, you know, was a Vancouverite. Uh, there was a lot of things that made me look good. And so I got through the first interview, like no problem. And the second interview was, you know, like a behavioral interview where they talk about like what you would do in certain situations and then also involved like interacting in groups. And uh, it was an awful experience for me. And I think like it was clear to them. And so when I went back for the follow-up after the second interview, they told me, they're like, look, Lanny, like you're, you're very impressive. You know, you're very smart. We know you would do an excellent job, but you just don't fit into the culture here. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they use this sort of second, you know, uh, second you know, screening exercise in order to identify that, you know, even though I had the ability, I wasn't the right fit that organization. It was also apparent to me, by the way, when I was in this thing, that it wasn't uh, for me. So, so you mentioned the word screening, and I think uh, it's it's worth mentioning the difference between signaling and screening. When you're signaling something, it's usually the informed party. So like the, you're, you're going to get a job, you are sending the signal that with your CV or with your diploma that you're a good person. Screening is usually when the uninformed party, in this case, uh, I think the example is great, the, the bank doesn't know much about you. It's trying to to set up a situation where it will find out more information about you. So this is exactly this, this type of interview. It's screening its candidates in order to get the ones they like best. And so there are other situations where this could happen, but the difference between signaling and screening, it depends on who is really setting up. Well, well, and we have an amazing mechanism in the economics academic job market where, you know, at the final stage of the evaluation process, you go visit 
uh, a campus and you spend an entire day meeting with people, having lunch, giving a presentation, and more than likely you've flown to that location late at night, the night before. So you're very, very tired when you do these things almost all the time. And then they put you through, you know, eight hours of meetings and activities with uh-huh. no break, no time to catch your breath. And then they take you out for dinner. Yeah. And so that's when things unravel. Exactly. And so the reason that this is such a brilliant mechanism is that if somebody was, you know, uh, putting up a front for, you know, trying to put up a front, you know, like I'm a great colleague, I'm a nice guy, you really want to hire me. uh, At some point, you're so tired, uh, you know, that you can't do it anymore. Like at dinner, you are yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's really nothing you can do. They tell you not to get a glass of wine because otherwise it lowers your defenses. Well, th- this yeah. is exactly it. So that, you know, that's the, st- <laughs> so, so everyone knows, right? So, you know, when you're being advised about this market, they tell you, you know, don't drink anything because, mm-hmm. you know, if you're trying to pretend to be something you're not, you know, one sip of alcohol is going to unravel the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I actually think, you know, it's, it is, it's a grueling experience. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, in some dimensions, but when I think, when you think about it more carefully, you start to see that it's created to, to break down people's defenses. So you can extract as much information as you can in a relatively short time. Another great example and, and perhaps, you know, more exciting example of adverse selection is, uh, the dating market in your thirties. The, in this situation, you know, you, you find yourself, you know, in a, in a pool of people that were not successful pairing up in their twenties. And uh, it ends up uh, resembling, you know, the, you know, credit markets and the insurance markets. Like the job market, really, because it's looking more and more like a job interview, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, one of the fascinating things about dating in your 30s is, you know, trying to solve this information problem. And how do you solve it? And how do the, you know, the new uh, types of technology that exist today either help or or hinder your ability? Or Tinder. (laughs) Or Tinder, yeah. (laughs) Your ability to... um, you know, find out the information you want, which is ultimately, is this person a good match for me? That's true. So there's all these mechanisms to try to get at the true information. And I think that's, that's probably what we'll end up with, with the, we'll conclude with this segment with the fact that the proof is in the pudding. If, if there are all these mechanisms, these signaling, these screening mechanisms, well, it, it means that the actual problem is out there. You know, this adverse selection problem is out there. And we've, we've come up with, with ways to try to maintain make sure these markets actually happen and and our improve our our social uh, interactions there's a call there's a call there's a call for you there's a call on the phone for you my question is is the cost of making things at home less expensive than buying them from the store for example i've sewn and i've knit for many years Buying a mass-produced item would probably be less expensive and probably more perfect than if I made it myself. If I make these items myself, it's because I like to learn new skills, I like to challenge myself, and it allows me to have the item just as I'd like it, even if it means that it could be more expensive and time-consuming than if I bought it. My question is, how do I estimate the true cost of the item that I make? If I consider only the cost of the materials, it could probably be comparable to what I would buy in a store, but how do I calculate the time I spent making it? Should I calculate my hourly rate based on my white collar job? Should I estimate it based on my level of expertise as a knitter or seamstress? Should it be free since it's a hobby? That's a very good question, uh, Geneviève. Thanks for asking it. There are several possible answers, which is what you mentioned. How do you measure the value of your time? And believe it or not, it's not... It's not, a, there's no definite answer to that. So in economics, there's several ways of thinking about this. I think the maybe the most common way, and, and still it's not perfect, the, the most common way is, is really what's called the opportunity cost of time. So what would you do instead of knitting? If you're doing, you're knitting right now, what would have been your other options? And, you know, if, if, it's, if you could have been working, it's your hourly wage. And a lot of cost-benefit analysis, they will take that co- opportunity cost of time into account, but they will do it in a way that's not always, uh, not always, they will do it in a way that is not always accurate. Because think about this. So suppose you're knitting at 7 p.m., you know, you're at home, and you would not have been working at that time. You're just kind of chilling on your couch, watching TV, whatever, just knitting at the same time. You would not have been working. So it's not like you're giving up that money. On the other hand, you could also think that, well, maybe you could have been working overtime and then earning maybe a lot more than your regular hourly wage, in which case that would be, if you choose to knit instead, that means 
you value your time at at least that much. And so that's the problem kind of the problem with uh, the market wage the, is that it's only a lower bound of the actual value of your time, of the time that it is to you. If you choose to knit instead of doing whatever else could have paid you X amount of money, that means your the value of your time is worth at least X amount of money and probably more because you chose to knit instead. And so the opportunity cost the point of view is the micro uh, thinking uh, on that question. But also if we take the macro thinking of that question, uh, it makes me think about the, the GDP accounting, the gross domestic product. Uh, so for example, if Geneviève is doing a, Uh, knitting by by herself, uh, it will not be counted uh, in the GDP. But if she was paying someone to do the the same job that she she does, then it will be counted in, in the GDP. So I guess it's really a question of point of view uh, here. Oh yeah, if you marry your cleaning lady, then the GDP goes down. That's that's <laughs> that's the way the GDP works. <laughs> you don't pay her anymore. Yeah, well, and it, well, we know we have these weird flaws, right? In the you know GDP calculations, so. Um, but this one, you know, is kind of especially insidious because, you know, historically this has, you know, kind of devalued the contributions of people who are producing within within the home. And, you know, 50 years ago, this was almost entirely women. And so you end up, you know, having this impression like, okay, men work and, and women don't. Well, you know, I can tell you this, I would, you know, rather, you know, go out and sit in an office than spend my days like uh, cleaning and trying to take care of children. Um, so clearly the fact that like, you know, you would have to pay another human being to do it for you or you would do something to avoid doing it means it's valuable. And that same, the same thing is true with these, you know, to, um, other types of items you might produce yourself at home. You know, this is a valuable contribution to your household and to society because it's, you know, creating um, things that are being consumed and enjoyed. And so really it is, you know, unfortunate that our, you know, the way we measure productivity in our society has, you know, this omission and that this omission is, you know, heavily biased uh, against one particular group. Yeah. And, and the, um, there, there's this trend and I think, uh, uh, well, I actually, uh, you know, knitting at home is one thing, but I mean, you could, you could be making a whole bunch of other things. And there's this, uh, this movement, you know, the maker movement that you guys may have heard about, which is, uh, something that started in the early 2000s, been really pick, picking up steam in the last decade, which is this, um, this way of making the production of items and goods closer to the community, where you, know, you would have these workshops that would be open to everybody, where you could just go at any time and then use a tool or, or a, an actual bench, a workbench, then that way you don't have to buy it yourself. It makes no sense to have one person, everybody buy a workbench. You would just go there and you use it. You contribute however you want. You could give a donation. It could be financial. It could be by, you know, just donating a tool or something that you're not using very much anymore. The idea is to, is to make better use of the stuff that's already been purchased instead of buying new stuff all the time. And so that's, you've probably heard of Fab Labs as well. So these are, these are the kind of fabrication laboratories where people get together and, and, uh, and, and produce things. And it, it gives a sense of community. There's also the, uh, the, the tech version of this where it's called more the, not the uh, maker movement, but the hacker movement where people exchange ways to build apps and software to, um, to simply enrich their lives and then feel uh, like they're making stuff. And so that's another thing. I think, uh, If we go to Geneviève's question, I know she was asking a lot about the value of her time and the, uh, the materials that was already done, but there's also the value of the object itself. You know, it's to what extent. So one thing we, we do say in our economic textbooks, maybe not all economic <laughs> textbooks, is that, well, maybe I don't know if we'd say it anymore, but the, uh, it, it's not so much the value of the object, but the value of the action. And so the action is making whatever you're knitting. So let's say you're knitting a scarf, whatever. And... Like, like Geneviève was, like you were mentioning, there's a lot of value into this. It's not necessarily a cost. The value is that you're learning, you're learning a skill, you're relaxing, or you're making something for somebody that you care about. And so all of that is the experience. It's not just the object. And the when going back to the earlier point I made about the value of time and the market value of time, well, the market value of things is only what people are willing to pay in the population in aggregate for a given item. So there's people willing to pay a lot for it. There's people willing to pay very little for it. But what matters for the value of that specific item is how much you're willing to pay for it. And that is that is the value of it. And it's very difficult to calculate. And this is why we're circling back to this uh, notion of 
you know, GDP, that, that's the market value of stuff that's being traded in. And we know it's not accurate. We know it's not perfect. Can we make it better? We probably can. In fact, there's a lot of, uh, of suggestions to make it better in doing environmental accounting and green accounting and, uh, and taking into account home uh, production as well. That's another way. So, so I'm going to change direction slightly and go full economist here. Yep. Um, so what if home production uh, like this, making knitting your own sweaters or, you know, um, you know something along those lines is I- immoral uh, in our current economic structure? Well, if I were to do so it, it would be immoral we have because a, I, can't, I, I can't knit for crap. Right. No, of course. But no, here's where I'm going with this. And, and I am. I, look, I'm only saying this as, a, as an argument. I don't necessarily believe this. But, you know, the way our economy is structured is it's based on specialization and trade. And so when you decide to knit your own sweater, uh, you're not a sweater knitter. You're, uh, you know, a, a white collar person, right? Your uh, comparative advantage is in this other career. That's what you've specialized in. And kind of this social contract we have in this type of institutional setup is I'm going to do the thing I do best. I'm going to earn my money and then I'm going to buy everything else. And that allows everyone else to do what they do best so that they can buy what they need. Uh, And so when you decide to knit your own sweater in your leisure time, uh, in some sense, you're taking income away from somebody else. Um, And now I'm not saying that like the economy we have is the ideal economy, but I just kind of thought about it this way. And, you know, wondered to what extent, like, we should worry about if everybody starts producing at home, this reduces the opportunity for people to, um, to, you know, specialize. Uh, And then, of course, if they can't specialize, right, everyone has to start and produce more stuff on their own. And this will, you know, kind of lead us to a, a, you know, a a degrowth situation, which might be desirable. um, But definitely, you know, our economy is not set up for people to be producing their own clothes, producing their own food. Um, If everybody did that, the sort of market economy we have really just wouldn't work at all. Uh, Well, I wouldn't worry about that too much, Lanny, because it's not about to happen. (laughs) But first of all, actually, I would say that specialization is, is not a moral contract. It's it's the result of our economic way of doing things. I, I don't think that there is a there, you know, for example, paying taxes is is a legal uh, requirement, but it's it's also a moral contract that you should pay your fair share. But I don't think it's to that to that same level as far as the fact that, you know, for example, so basically what you would be saying if we were to extend this, what if I buy something that I don't really like? Is that something that is a problem? Like you could say, you could say I'm buying it. So right now I'm looking at uh, looking at PS5s and I can't find a PS5, right? Because it's, they're out of stock. And what if somebody bought it that didn't really like it or didn't really want it and just bought it for, for like, and it's taking it away from somebody, possibly me. Uh, I don't think that's an immoral thing to do. I'm not happy about it, but it's, I don't think that's an immoral thing to do. But other than that, I, I do think specialization is actually the result of the way our economy is structured, as opposed to the um, to the foundation of of our of our market economy, so that's it's it's up for debate. You know, Smith would tell you that uh, it's because we have different skills that we specialize, and it's kind of uh, natural that way. It's natural that we want to trade, and therefore we specialize. That's that's his view. Other people might say it's the other way around that we have natural talent, and therefore. We want to specialize because of natural talent, not because we've started trading and therefore are, are each in their in our own situation. But uh, the long story short, we are not going to be uh, undermined. The economy is not going to be undermined because uh, Jen is is knitting a couple of sweaters. So I, I think we're I think we're good. No, no, and, and I certainly actually <laughs> so and I actually wasn't trying to criticize Jen in any any way whatsoever. I, I actually produce a lot of um, food at home. Um, you know, I rarely ever buy any processed how, food. How dare uh, you? Restaurants. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is it, right? So, but that, but this is a little bit my point, right? So, by me cooking all of my meals at home, uh, I really am taking away revenue from restaurants. Uh, I preserve lots of stuff. You know, the you know there is this to consider. I'm not saying that it has ever entered my mind until this very second. Uh, but it is the case, right, that our economy does rely on specialization and people buying the things that they don't produce themselves. Well, but it's kind of funny that you say this because in a way you're saying specialization is a way to not waste resources, but our economy is based on waste, right? Because if 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 you uh, 
if in, instead of uh, of making things by yourself and preserving lots of things, and you just go and buy them every time, that's really good for the economy. If you buy new stuff and and all the time, and you don't don't wait for it to, if you don't share it when you don't need it, for example. But that's a great engine for our economy, isn't it? Buying new yeah. stuff. Well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you can just see that you know what some companies have done. Um, you know, the way they've modified their products to make them of lower quality. Yeah, land obsolescence. So absolutely. So my biggest pet peeve is Ziploc bags. So the Ziploc bags that were produced 10 years ago are indestructible. Like you can use them for the rest of your life. The Really, like it's incredible. But now the ones you buy, right? The same company, same box, right? These things are garbage. Like you can use them maybe twice and then they start ripping along the seam and that's it. And so you're telling me that the guys at Ziploc were thinking, how can we make a better bag? Oh, this one that's worse is clearly better. They keep saying they improve the, the zipper and they do improve the zipper, but the rest of the bag just falls yeah. apart. So what's the point? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or like Band-Aid. So, you know, 10 years ago, buy a Band-Aid, stick that thing on your arm. You know, you need like the jaws of life to get it off of you. Um, whereas now, you know, you buy a Band-Aid, right? And it, you know, falls off after 20 minutes or if like any well, water because gets anywhere near it, That's because useless. you're hairier than you were 25 years ago. <laughs> okay, so maybe, but like I, so my point is, right, you're right. Like the, the disposable nature of our economy, you know, creates more, uh, you know, economic uh, wealth or, you know, economic activity. And, you know, to a certain extent, like that's what we're, we're doing. I mean, and, you know, Justin, you've mentioned this many times before, right? This sort of growth world that we live in, uh, you know, is really pushing us to this hyper consumerism. Um, and because, you know, we have to continue the, the Ponzi scheme. And I guess what I'm saying is that home production breaks the link in the Ponzi scheme a little bit. And as long as the Ponzi scheme is how our economy survives, if people don't participate in it, potentially there's a threat. But I take your point that, you know, it's not a significant threat. You know, if uh, I'm producing, you know, sauerkraut at home and Jen is knitting her own sweaters, I don't think it's going to take down the Canadian it's economy. It's probably not, but it was a good question anyway. It was uh, fun to talk about it. Thank you. It was yeah. a great question. It was a great question. Thank you, Jen. You want to say goodbye, Lanny? You want to do the, the honors? I never know what it I, is. I don't either. It's just, uh, well, thanks. What's the content of saying goodbye again? Do I need to say no, anything? Just, uh, thanks for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next week for the final episode. I didn't mean to trick uh, you into it, but it worked really well. <laughs>